Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. Hello, everyone. Very nice to have you for this third episode of uh, Le Corner International. Uh, today, we're very happy to to welcome Frank Chocard from EBU Eurovision. Hello, Frank. Hello, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. Well, very glad to be able to welcome you here for this conversation. And I think it's a it will be a very good episode for 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 our followers uh, to understand a little bit the activities of Eurovision slash EBU. Um, today, we also have JB with us. Hi, JB. Hi, guys. Um, so to deep dive directly into it, Frank, can you can you give us a little bit of background on who you are, your activities at Eurovision, and uh, and your and your background a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So it's always good, yeah, starting in a bit of context. And uh, I've been around and within the EBU for more than 20 years now. Uh, I started my uh, career more on the, the news side, as I will explain later. The EBU has a wide variety of activities. And uh, more than 10 years ago, I had the opportunity and chance to move further within the EBU on the sports side when uh, EBU decided to create its own internal subsidiary body to deliver production services. So I was asked back in that time, uh, let's say just uh, around to 8 to 9, to kick off and start what was called Eurovision Production Services. So really the host broadcasting body of the EBU to complement and supplement what uh, public service media or members we are not able to deliver anymore for producing big sporting events. So that was really within a kind of a let's say, startup spirit as we were starting from scratch. And we had the chance to deliver various uh, type of production services on our big events that we acquired because it was a need from the market to supplement this kind of host broadcasting facilities. And over the years, I would say, without big surprise, especially for you guys, I was evolving from purely broadcast production side to engaging more and more around the content and the digital publication and to have a wider scope from producing the event, ensuring efficient broadcast production, but at the same time adapting the full value chain to be able to fulfill all potential publications for our broadcasters, but also our stakeholders. Then having had multiple I'm, I'm jobs sorry, I'm stepping in. Do, do you have a technical background to do all that or at first? Or? Uh, yeah, originally speaking, I indeed came more from the technical side. So I, um, I studied uh, engineering and, um, and values, let's say, uh, IT levels. Mm-hmm. But then because I, I had the chance of discovering a broadcast world when I was studying, I was working for a local TV station nearby Geneva, actually, uh, in France. And I started on the broadcast side and then moved on more to the content. And then this, I would say, balance between my uh, former technical background and uh, my uh, appealing to content, I think, helped me, I think, to achieve this kind of development. Nice. Nice. And so you were giving the scope. That's interesting for your background because people now know that they cannot uh, get to you technically. You know, you, you have the proper background to understand what's going on. And so, as you were saying, you put together Eurovision Broadcasting Services and just higher level. What are the different uh, verticals inside Eurovision Sport? As you know, a lot of people know EBU Eurovision, but it's always good to have a good uh, to give a little bit of clarity on the different verticals so that people understand it very well. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And um, and that's, you know, pretty confusing for many people and that's normal. And uh, to be fully correct, when we talk about, you know, Eurovision slash EBU, as a matter of fact, we should talk about the EBU. The EBU stands for the European Broadcast um, Union. So we are the Association of Public Service Media in Europe. We represent 115 member organizations around 56 countries, which are all public service media and have more than 60 years ago created this unique alliance to basically help and support public service media within the society. And this is what we are. So 
when we talk about Eurovision, it's one of the sub-brand of the EDU because EDU has four main pillars of activity. It's, as I said, related to first advocacy. So we are here really to support and let's say promote the importance of public service media in Europe and within the society. We are here to stimulate the collaboration and to exchange best practice among all of these members to make sure that you know the hub of knowledge and the expertise and training goes well around everyone. And of course, based on that, we build alliance and networking, making sure that we all together stay relevant. Based on this, of course, we had to adapt our various offering. And one of the, let's say, major changes over the last few years has been the creation of a subsidiary called Eurovision Services, which deliver all of the technical services on behalf of the EBU, but also to the market. And that has been something that we've been developing over the past 20, 30 years, making sure that we stay relevant on technical services. And the last part is related, you know, to the content, uh, content hub and development, where basically in terms of content partnership, we have four major pillars within the EU. The first one is related to uh, the media content and maybe the flagship product of the EBU and the most well-known on the market, which is a Eurovision Song Contest. So basically the media content offers this kind of live events and the Eurovision Song Contest is the most well-known one. But we are also delivering there, you know, co-production and also uh, quite a strong focus on uh, young audiences. That's obviously for all of the broadcasters a very relevant part. But then we also have a very strong radio presence. You know, we have the tendency to forget about radio. That's still a primary medium that we need to pay attention to. And we have more than, you know, 3,000 concerts every year being offered to the community. And then comes the two biggest pillars of day-to-day content, the news side, where EBU provides through Eurovision News a 24-7 exchange platform among members and partners to exchange news content, to offer, you know, uh, news uh, to the society and the part where I'm working in, which is Eurovision Sports. So we are one of the pillars, we are the sport department of the EDU. And there, our main duty, of course, is to secure premium sport properties for public service media and to offer free consumption of sport to the audience. So as a matter of fact, within Eurovision Sport, just to give you a short highlight, we have more than 20 sports within our portfolio. We work with 25 to 30 federations. And that represent thousands of hours of content every year that we distribute within the membership. Very interesting. And to get back on that notion of um, all the public broadcasters being, uh, you know, together through the union that you you guys created, are those broadcasters really working hand in hand? Are they sharing best practices? Is that do they have that impulse of sharing knowledge and best practices beyond beyond you guys, or is it something that you have to keep feeding for them to do? I think it's, you know, like like anyone else, you, the focus of your organization is, you know, to deliver your core duties and your key, let's say, KPIs requested by your, um, your influencers and your uh, stakeholders. And as any other media organization, any public service media would, of course, focus to stay relevant for its own society, for its government, to maintain its financial model and so on. So obviously, this collaboration and this engagement Even so, it's part of their DNA. They may from time to time lose uh, the focus on that. So we are there to make sure that we maintain that. So we have a lot of working groups, governing bodies, best best practice forum, and a lot of our colleagues working on really making sure that this stimulation, this hub of knowledge, this alliance philosophy stays in. And this is also really part of what we do on the sports side, uh, aside, you know, delivering the events and securing new contracts that we maintain a very good um, network and hub of knowledge among members. And it, I think it shows these days the importance, especially on this fragmented market that we are facing. And I also believe that all of the COVID crisis and what did hit us one year ago, more or less now, uh, showed the importance of this alliance and this exchange, because we really had to go through a lot of best practice among us, mm-hmm. basically success on making sure together we are stronger than being alone. 
so and that's really important for us. In 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 concrete terms, you were you were kind of identifying in some of your members, so in different markets, best practices, or like going back to the product. So some solutions that after you could push forward, some kind of monitoring centralized by you guys that after you can push to the other members when it works in one specific market, or how how it, how does it work in in concrete terms? Yeah, so in, in concrete terms, well, first of all, you know, we have a very va vast variety of membership models um, within, you know, their own business model. Because if we look, for example, from BBC, which is definitely, you know, ahead of everyone on digital engagement, on, let's say, uh, content exploitation, they are very solid in many aspects. But by essence, they cannot commercialize any of these aspects because they are fully funded by public service, uh, by public funds and they are not allowed to do advertisement. On the other end, we have some other type of members where 60% of their budget would come from private funds. So the first point, you know, is to well leverage between these two realities at the two extremes that we have to be careful with. Having said that, we have the unique chance of having, you know, thousands of employees within the membership. And indeed, as you said, they are developing this kind of very efficient solutions, platforms, engagement, best practice, be it in format, be it in content, be it in uh, any kind of rich engagement that we can learn from, try to productize, if I can use such a term, and try to adapt it to the full membership. I think, historically speaking, because it's always good to look at the past and to see how we've succeeded in building an innovative approach within um, our membership and uh, building on the strength of the union, If we look back when we had the Olympic right, which uh, still, you know, last time was in uh, 2012 in London, but back in the time, we were able, thanks to the membership, let's say, initiatives, but also the unique collaboration to create a digital ecosystem where we're offering to the European Audience Society the publication of 100% of the game's coverage um, on a website together with the editorial enrichment from each and every member. So that means, as an example, for a French expat um, living in Germany or Italy or UK, he would have been able back in the time to consume France television coverage back in his country because the platform was offering that. And that was typically one of these best practice initiatives, idea of saying, look, we are a union, we share content, we share knowledge, we know our value society and we want to reach them. And we were able to build this kind of common exploitation scheme that was able to be used by all and generating even potential, you know, profit, money and engagement. So, so I think yeah. this is what we always try now to, to, to manage. It's making sure that best practice from one member can be used by others while adapting to their market reality. That's very interesting because, yes, they can share best practices and there's also a role of Eurovision to impulse some innovation and try out certain uh, things in different territories that can now then be um, scaled throughout Europe with the different um, with the different members of EBU. So that's a very interesting thing. And I think that that, that is pretty clear as far as the first key pillar is really um innovate and create innovate, uh, innovation dynamic within the public broadcasters and share best practices, whether the impulse comes from a broadcaster itself, BBC. We also see that France and RTBF uh, put together an acceleration program or whether it comes directly from uh, Eurovision. But on the side, you're also involved in the productions, as you said, of big events uh, in, in different ways, such as with the Olympics. So there's a, a, a very agency model but you also approach certain events with a more in a more strategic way uh, where the EBU can provide full support a little bit like you did around the European Championships in 2018 in Glasgow and Berlin. Can you tell us a bit more about that strategic aspect of what Eurovision does there? Yeah, for, for sure. Thanks for asking. Just, just to clarify, I think, one key point, because as you rightly pointed out, yes, we somehow for some properties act a bit like any other agency, meaning trying to secure on behalf of our members the international rights of some events. But having said that, where we are very much different from an agency is we are a broadcast community. We don't do so aiming at you know generating profit or generating uh, any kind of money. What we are here for is making sure that 
European society can consume sports within a free model. And to be fully honest, it's not 100% free because we all pay, you know, a kind of uh, fees to have public service media, which is part of our let's say, society. And then what we are aiming at is together with our partners, the content owners of the federation, is building the strongest possible community around the event. And that's exactly what it was all about back in 2018, but in fact, years before, where together with uh, some partners, we were you know, analyzing a bit the global landscape of sports in Europe, especially in view of big multi-sport events, such as the Olympics. And as I said, since 12, Summer Olympics have been away of the European time zone, uh, and it is the case until now 24 in Paris, and we realize that, wow, we are missing within our time zone a big sporting event. At the same time, we didn't want to create something new. We just wanted to build an existing product. So the idea was, together with some partners, together with the European, some European sports federations, was to aggregate their existing European championships on a one unique event. And just taking, you know, the assumption at the beginning that, you know, the overall and the wall will be greater than the sum of the parts. By you know aggregating this athletic swimming, cycling, and so on, we would create like a leverage factor. And we did succeed. We managed basically thanks to the uniqueness of the EBU and securing from the beginning onward the fact that it would be broadcasted on the premium channel of our members, it would be broadcasting on the premium streetwear channels all over Europe. We managed to reach you know an audience growth for all of the sports of few percent for some of them, such as athletics, which are already quite a success, to an amazing, you know, doubling or even tripling or quadrupling the, the reach of some of the sports. And at the end, what we managed to reach through this model was a global audience in Europe of roughly 260 million plus people that were basically watching the event. Just to give you a perspective of yeah. what it means, when we look at the Winter Olympics, such as, you know, Pyeongchang, but the last one we have in the portfolio, we are around 350. So we were basically almost, let's say, within an Olympic success with a much more reasonable and sustainable model. And what we also wanted to do through that event is showing to the, let's say, market, society, and everyone that it's not only about TV, because yes, out of the 265 million reach we had, most of it was TV, and the linear TV is still the premium and the main product that we we'll want to reach. But we managed, you know, to get around 20 million people consuming this content only on digital. And I think that was the second major achievement that we, we managed to do over European Championships, was building an ecosystem that was making the reach on linear TV, traditional TV, and digital platforms of our members but also being able to build an additional 10% audience that was consuming only on alternative digital platforms. And that was really our goal by showing the market, look guys, there is a way aggregating, working together and looking at the multi-platform approach, not individually, but in the collective interest and co-creating value among all of the stakeholders is the key of the success. Frank? And that has been an amazing success. Coming coming from the the sports organization side with with UEFA as like where I've worked, uh, how how was it uh, taken by the international federations? Are, are they grateful to to be you? I mean, I guess like two sixty million, ten uh, percent of this on digital. I guess you are for them like also answering some of their key challenges today. So. Do, do you have like constant discussions with them? How 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 are they happy with the with the 2018 event? How they look forward to maybe renew it or do it in the future to to try to sustain this? Because we know today participation is key for these international federations and having access to the sports, seeing it. I mean, being able to to consume it through linear TV or digitally is kind of key today for this international federation. So. How, how is it working with them? How how are they reacting to that? Yeah, so on, on that specific project, you know, we had the unique chance uh, of working with our European Federation partner. So clearly Federation with whom we work all year long and for more than 20 years, uh, uh, building solutions and helping them to develop their event, their brand and their awareness. So for sure, they were 
more than happy about the outcome. Uh, and that was very important. We wanted, you know, federations are the key stakeholder of the event. But as I said, I would say differently from other events, the European Championships model, and yes, it continues because the next one are in 22 in, uh, in Munich. Uh, all of the partners are equally important. So for sure, the European federations, but also the organizing committee, the city, it's really important that they get, uh, you know, proper ROI and uh, they have a say on many aspects and the broadcast community. And the full event was built taking into account these three aspects. What federation needs, what an organizing committee and city needs as a return investment, and what broadcasters need as an event, which would be built and delivered mainly on their screen first, um, and then adapted also for all of the other type of audiences. So yeah. for sure, the federation had a lot of learning through that. Uh, it was an amazing success for them. We collectively have reached, I think, what is the number one KPI, is securing a new organizer to come for 22, which gives a lot. And uh, Munich is investing a very large budget to succeed on the 22 events. And then the Federation are looking at how to build on that, to reinvest the profit of such an event in the development of the sport in Europe. That's their main ambition. Yeah, no, it's it's clear that uh, it's a win-win. I mean, it needs to be a win-win for everyone to be able to do it again. So I was just thinking, like, if you had a maybe like as a teaser to help us understand for 2022 what what you could have done uh, differently from 2018, where maybe local organizing committee, the European federations, and EBU was working together to, to try to improve maybe the reach or or some other aspects of the events, because I think. This is where it's key. It's like what, what we what we say is like innovation is a team sport. So w- once you have the local organizing committee with the with the federations, but also the partners like the broadcasters or or the media, uh, traditional or or the new ones, the digital ones uh, coming together, this is where you can really change things or or, or increase the ROI. So I was just thinking like maybe this can be a, a good platform also for you and for them to to work more together. Yes, no, no, clearly. And I think, again, it's still a pretty, let's say, young, uh, young project. And we are still at the early stage because that, uh, you know, for not even four years yet, mm-hmm. yet of existence, as uh, we are building the second one, it's not easy. I think it's exactly what you were lighting on the fact that how do we co-create value all together without necessarily only looking at our own brand? And that's, you know, a discussion we have a lot with, um, with federations. And uh, some agree, some others challenging, and ultimately others are totally disagreeing about it. It's, it's how do we build strong communities? How do we build consistent engagement within and around the events without necessarily looking at my own brand? So that means as a federation, is it more important to promote your brand as such, or is it more important to promote your sports and use your brand around your events? As a broadcaster, is it important to you know promote your brand and exposure irrespectively of what is happening? Or is it important to contribute when this is key for you and then to agree the other to exploit in a way where it's a bit less relevant, meaning out of the life? So this is one of the you know big balance we try to achieve nowadays is convince everyone that similar to what was the success of European Championships. The importance is not one of the actor and how one brand is being seen by the others, but is how can we build something greater, greater altogether just by looking one brand. I mean, none of us, unfortunately, uh, will have, you know, the same possibilities, financial resources than the NBA or than the UEFA that, you know, pretty well about and so on to, to develop very strong programs while being such a strong brand as a as a product you know like yeah. uh, the, and the I think league that, or the champions league that definitely fits very well your mission right because especially in this period with covid and the uncertainty around the olympics those smaller federations must be looking at this munich event at, as another source of potential content exposition because i mean it's important to say that for example in france i remember having the the cover of l'équipe the biggest newspaper be about gymnastics which is you know 
not something that happens very often. So for the promotion and the understanding of the value you're creating for the smaller federations, I think that's very key and they must be looking at it as a breath of fresh air um, to see that there's other revenue that will be coming in beyond uh, the Olympic cycles. Yeah, and again, take into account that we are talking about European federations, which do not get any direct benefits from the IOC as they are not international. We had one international federation, which was a rolling one, so they get part of the IOC funding. But for all of the European federations, they need to create their own sustainable model. They cannot rely uh, mostly on IOC subside or even on you know what the international federation would give them. So for, for them, and as a consequence for us, it's important that we create a viable and sustainable ecosystem for the future. And what they showed around European championships is they were ready to basically, let's say, not, not hide this, but at least diminish the visibility of their own brand behind the umbrella. And that was the success of it. That was saying, look, guys, we have one umbrella for two weeks, which is European championships. That's the aggregation of the best of the sport in Europe, in gymnastic, athletics, swimming, cycling, and so on. And thanks to that, you will be successful. Now what we need to transform is from one event every four years, having more recurrent events. We have that within some of the sports. Uh, we have strong European championships, standalone ones, but we need to reinforce that. And what we have also to develop and to enhance even further, and we had to do so with the peak of the, cri of the crisis related to the COVID when it was no more sporting events, is how do we maintain the momentum and the fan engagement while we have no live events. Mm -hmm. And that's also something else that we need to build all together between media experts, which are broadcasters, and we have the chance of having 156 territories in order to adapt to the audience and so on, with the business reality of the various federations to basically fill this community with the relevant content and the proper engagement. Yeah. For for me, just just a quick one, and after I will leave some leading the the podcast because he's the one leading it today, and and I don't want to to take the floor too often. But the thing is, from what you say, I really like the idea to have them coming together, so we are we are stronger together rather than like having their own audiences which are very fragmented and very limited on their own. While bringing that together makes it more powerful. But at the end of the day, it's also. What I wanted to ask is like you are building in a way communities. So you are the best of sports in Europe and you are building this community of millions of fans watching. So for me, the challenge is like how you make it more not sustainable, but something where you have different touch points, not maybe not a 24-7 things, but how you how you engage more often or when there is low low moments or less live events. So how you, you maintain this community and how you, you build it, actually, because you just started in 2018. But I, I was thinking like part of the roadmap or the idea you may have is that may be one, one of the most challenging. That's, that's for sure, because basically, as you said, we want to have this multiple community, let's say, strength. By uh, all together, we will be stronger. And we come from a time where a few years back and Still, a few months back, I would say we would have not trying to coordinate because between our members, media partners, managing their own community and you know building their own audience KPIs, engagement KPIs towards their local uh, local citizens. We would have also let the federations manage in their own way on a global basis. What we now want to do, because when we look at what we are between European or international federation and EBU, we are the same, meaning we are association of members. So what is our common strength is the fact that in all of the European countries, we have a very strong partner, member, possibility to package and engage content towards the national, um, national audiences. And somehow the international federation have the same with our national federation. So now what we want to facilitate and to support is out of events or out of the big events we have, how can we work on a country per country basis to have a more bottom-up approach? Meaning that facilitating the collaboration between our national member with the National Federation of the Sport by working together, by aggregating their possibilities, be it you know, editorial or commercial, 
and contributing to a common ecosystem. And then we can have this bottom-up approach coming back to the global view that we had in European Championships. I think, look, irrespectively of the size of the event, we will address the need of the community. You love athletics or you love aquatics or you love gymnastics. You can go to this place and you will find the relevant content. You can engage with your athletes. You can have the news and so on. And you do not need now to research too much where to find it. So again, it's exactly what we did around the European Championships is building a common ground, a common ecosystem, but now to be able to address each and every market by uh, building strong partnerships. Yep, that's very interesting. And the scope of those projects seem huge. What makes it very fun more at a personal level for you and what makes it complicated? What are the challenges you face when you put when you put together such big projects where the ROI and the and the the quality of the project can only be measured further down the line? I mean, let's unfortunately let's be realistic. The, f- the first challenge will always be the same. It's it's budget and uh, what is the business model behind and is it sustainable? We we cannot uh, develop and jeopardize you know public service money by uh, investing millions in unsustainable projects. So I think the, the first part is that. Is how, how do we make it viable uh, without being a huge cost, neither for the federations, neither for our um, our broadcasters, because that would you know kill it from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So first, we need to adapt to this market reality and identify what kind of you know business model and development can we offer to each and every market, to each and every partner um, to fulfill this uh, this need. Then we need to be able to adapt. It's not you know one solution fit them all. We have a vast variety of even legal possibilities uh, around Europe. So we need to adapt that on a country per country basis. And then when we succeed on building this complex framework, it's all a question of, okay, how do we now present it to market, meaning internally to our members? We don't want to compete against your publication platforms. Every time you will publish something, we want that to be enhanced, to be maximized. We want to help you um, increase your retention time, to increase your engagement with fans, to help you with best practice. But everything you do not publish, we also want to help the content owner, be it international, European or national federations, on having the same reach to community. And if we don't do it together, adapting to your market reality, they will do it independently and in parallel. And this is exactly what today we are finalizing. It is global approach of how can we publish this adaptive offer, which allows this co-creation of value between national partners, European partners, and hopefully we will be able to extend that, let's say, to all of our international partners and also securing it to our biggest properties, which for us are always the same, aiming at securing football, FIFA World Cups, and so on but also aiming at adding the Olympics back in the EBU portfolio. Yeah, and that's an interesting one, actually. And you started answering it also with the European championships and the digital traffic that you witnessed there. To what extent, and and this platform is a good example, to what extent have you moved from a, from a, from a union that helped mostly topics on the broadcast side of things, on the linear side of things, to one that gives more advice and strategizes around digital-driven uh, offerings? Yeah, that's, that, that, that's quite a challenge because as I mentioned to you earlier, we really have various type of members and some of them are very advanced and others are way behind. But I think first we need to, you know, to kill a misperception of the market. Some of our members are really ahead of any competitor on the digital framework. We were talking earlier about BBC, I think no one can challenge that BBC is one of the best media global digital platform um, in UK or even in the world. But we have many others. In many countries, our members' digital platform, Avod Offering or, um, or Simulcast, are leaders in their market, even at Netflix or other type of actors. So first of all, you know, we, we learn a lot from that. You know, our members have more than, you know, almost 1,500 various digital platforms. And that really helps to look 
at what is working, what is not. Then from there, we really need, you know, to leverage, okay, what, what is our best chance to build the strongest possible communities and what, what is our core DNA? So again, the DNA of the EBU, and this is what we guarantee to all of our partners from the beginning is giving to our partners the biggest possible reach of free viewing. We are, by essence, against paywall to consume sport. Now we are also realistic about the market and the need to fulfill uh, expectation of right feed and so on. So we have very strong partnership with the actors and we'll continue. But at the same time, we need to find this balance to be able to have as much possible free consumption of sports um, and developing new value streams. So I think nowadays it's all about, in each and every country, how can we adapt the offering between public service media and any type of other national partner to provide content on a multi-platform scheme to the audience? And whenever we'll have events such as, you know, the World Cup, the Olympics, the European Championships, or any big events, we, we will still have a lot of eyeball in front of TV or in front of the main screen. I mean, we, we like that. It's part of our you know, culture and that will not change from one day to the other. But at the same time, we need to use all of these different screens. We need to use radio, which is a very important medium for us, to be able to target all of the communities that will not spend minutes or hours watching TV. And, and clearly, a lot of broadcasters are also shifting from having any kind of sport on their main linear TV channel to only the premium and adapting their offering to the various digital side. And of course, last but not least, we have what we call uh, the easy solution to go with the, with the GAFAs, with the funds, mm-hmm. and to say, look, yes, they are offering fantastic, let's say, uh, free of any cost solutions, but the value you can generate by giving all of your content to them is limited. You will have a reach, you will build a community, but then you will, you will reach a limit quite quickly. While if we replicate that in a more coordinated way with the various actors and using them for what they are good at in an amplification of promotion, we are convinced we can really build very strong digital ecosystem feeding all of the platforms from all of the stakeholders. Yeah. And that's an interesting one also, because obviously as EBU, you have very different stakeholders that are members of the EBU, um, to what extent do you have some common services that make sense and to how how similar are their strategies? They must be very different because we know that a, a BBC, an NRK or France TV have very high digital audiences, but you're also there to serve smaller territories with a smaller digital audience. Um, how, you know, how can you help find a common ground for everyone? Yeah, I, I think our first, you know, milestone, and this is what we've learned a lot of around the last month is we need, we need to build a minimum common ground. So we will never be able, you know, to have the BBC model being, a, in terms of technology, being applied to much smaller countries where the financial reality will never be the same. But we need to be able, for each and every of our members, irrespectively of its size, to benefit of an innovative, digital platform, allowing them to engage with their national audience. So one of the key programs we are about to launch now is how we can help the smaller ones, the one having less capacity, to have a common ground in terms of digital engagement with content and solutions. And then how can we exploit from this common ground to the first in class in a coordinated way to build what we call today a common broadband platform program that allows the EBU and its members to go to their communities, be it again international or national, and present them, look guys, this is what we are building, this is where we go in terms of content publication, content engagement on our channels, but also acting as an aggregator and helping you to create communities. Uh, Do you want to go on this journey with us? What do we offer you in exchange? We offer you an extremely good knowledge of our society and how to adapt the content, because we do that on a day-to-day basis. And we offer you the capacity to know better your fans, know better your audience, 
and somehow create a new commercial model towards your own partners, sponsors, and brands to create new business models. We really want now to have, you know, a, let's call it hybrid public-private um, view where, of course, we bring very high and, um, and uh, market-proof rights to secure the content of our membership, but we also build an exploitation scheme that allow additional revenues, which we don't mind giving the large proportion of to the partners, because this is what we believe will help all of us to grow and to generate uh, and new revenues through the digital ecosystem. On this new business model, I mean, you, that's part, I think, you were saying the EBU's role to bring all these pieces together. But the, the, where, where does um, Eurovision Services stand, like your daughter company, within this whole frame and this kind of new business model where that you were just touching upon now? As I said, a couple of years ago, we decided um, to separate the operational arm from the EBU and create a 100% subsidiary. Yeah. And, and that was very important for us because somehow what we want to replicate today is what builds the success of the services of the EBU. So again, looking back in the time, one of the key technical elements that was needed uh, more than 30 years ago by all of the EBU members was to facilitate content exchange between broadcasters. Mm-hmm. Back in the time, of course, it was linear TV broadcast. And so EBU and Eurovision, what was Eurovision services back in the time, built a very comprehensive network of transmission, satellites and fiber, to deliver this need. Okay. Then we realized that, look, on the market, it seems there is a need uh, to promote that out of the EBU community because other type of content owner or takers were in the need of such services. And then the EBU commercial side was able to, you know, pitch strong actors on the market that were not within EBU right portfolios, so such as the Formula One, IMG, in France, or even in the US, you know, we are a very strong partner of the NBA um, and others, to offer transmission services, technical, but also with a business model of telling them, look, instead of you as a content owner, you pay a global technical service. We take care of the recharge to each and every single takers that will pay a small contribution to access the signal, but that will make our living on that. And then we give you a revenue share of that. So we, we were able to transform from a cost-driven element to a revenue-based element for the content owner. And, and that the was very so now what we are looking at... Sorry. I was just what wondering. What we're looking at now on European services is is to replicate that on the digital age. How how can we generate any type of media service from production, packaging, distribution, and reaching any type of platform, and not necessarily to be a cost baseline for the content owner, but to become a value generator. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's clear. That's clear. Yeah, that covers a lot. That and that's very interesting for the global understanding of what you guys are trying to reach. Um, just one last question, Frank. In terms of there, there, there's a lot of people out there working on different similar topics as you, and you, meanwhile, doing it in a very different way. How would you, with your own words, characterize the key differences between EBU Eurovision Sports and any of your key competitors out there? What is the key added value you bring? I think the, the two, well, three, three of them, I would say that we are aiming at this. First of all, we are different to any of our competitors because we are, we are broadcasters. So we are not any, you know, middleman, third party, or any kind of other body. We are our members. So we try, you know, to, to facilitate, mitigate, leverage, balance this vast, vast variety of feedback we receive and give it back to our partners in the best possible way and trying to be constructive out of it. Then we are aiming at having the largest possible audience, not having necessarily to pay to consume. And this is for us very important. We want to defend that. And so we need to maintain a kind of challenging balance. 
And last but not least, we are not for profit. EBU is a non-profit organization, uh, as any public service media. Of course, none of us is for loss, so we are careful with our business model, and we need to fulfill what are the market reality and the ever-growing needs of additional funding for federations. But if we succeed on building a new model where profits would be generated at any scale, we are happy to give most of it to our partners. This is really, you know, what is on our DNA. We are not here to, you know, feed the pension funds for, uh, for of any kind with a return investment. We are here to secure these premium properties and we are here to make public service media indispensable to European society. So that's our key difference. Yeah. And for me, if I, if I may add, because uh, I really like it, uh, I like the vision and, and the positioning as well of what, of what you've explained us. But uh, for you, what, how do you see the future of this? Like, we know linear TV is still number one and you, you've reassessed it all along this podcast. But what, what's the future for you on digital? Like you, you were mentioning you are building this kind of digital services and the communities and the platform. Yeah, and the platform. So for me, it's like, I know we don't have a, a crystal ball. And when I'm asked, it's always tricky to say, okay, this is going to be like this for the next 12 to 24 months and for the next decade. But where where, where do you see the digital services going and, and the, the positioning of it with, with the currently existing offering and services and platform? As you said, I think it's, it's difficult to have the crystal ball and to say, look, uh, it will go right, left or center because... <laughs> Things are changing so fast that no one really knows, I believe. But I guess what, what for me would be a success is if your question becomes irrelevant. So meaning, what will be in few months or years time the difference between digital and linear TV? It won't exist anymore. The question is, will be, whom are the publishers? What kind of technology and platform they use to address the audience? And how do they engage with such audience. So we will still go from in-venue experience, you will still have, hopefully, we will have again spectators going to venues yeah. sooner or later, <laughs> and they will enjoy the live sport on-site, interacting with the screen, interacting with devices within the arena in a way or another. Then you will have the nearby experience around the venue where you would have whatever, giant screen, fan zone, and again, any kind of experience. Then you will have the further away where you will have your big screen in your living room, you will have your, you know, whatever device in your kitchen, and some other people will have uh, their tablet uh, connected devices walking around, and or you will consume again differently on your TV, especially your AI, uh, on your, uh, sorry, uh, on your car, especially with your AI car, and there your radio will become a TV also somehow. And, and all of that, I hope, will become, let's say, the technology and engagement part will be an enabler to reach communities mm. and to use the best possible people to reach and adapt to these communities. Yeah. So in Europe, where we are very different than U.S., we are the same, more or less, market potential, possibilities, uh, aggregated number of people and so on, even bigger. But we will always have this 50 more, you know, languages, culture, and barrier, and we'll need to adapt to that. And then from a traditional broadcaster to any other newcomer, we will have to adapt to the way all of these communities are consuming content from all the people still and all families that will still enjoy watching on the big screen to other people that will be much more happy to engage with uh, watch parties, watch together, uh, any other type on small devices to whomever that will be now, uh, you know, moving from a kitchen to living room to car and to the office and want to have, let's say, uh, a consistency journey mm. by consuming what is relevant for him or herself. Yeah, you don't care about the virtual. what is the future of you don't care about the virtual, yeah. you blur the lines and the content is accessible every day wherever you are on whatever devices. Exactly. And and with 
Yeah, and with whatever sustainability model. So because this is, I think, what is important nowadays is to make sure that we all remain uh, sustainable uh, and contribute to the sustainability and understand that from from the owner of the event, federations, to the organizers, investing a lot of money to make sure it happens, to whomever publish, to the athletes, who are the best of the influencers and with whom we really want to work you know, on a much closer uh, experience, that everyone can get access to what will grow its own value without impacting the others. And that's exactly what it's all about for the future. And hopefully, you know, public service media will remain a central part of this ecosystem because that's their duty is to be publishers of content and to enrich it for their audience. But by being more flexible and allowing others to work in a coordinated way and within a public service media framework, I'm sure we can succeed on building much stronger platforms. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I think as we uh, as we wrap up this very interesting ex exchange, one thing that we liked a lot and that prevails in everything you were mentioning is bringing the different communities together to to make everyone stronger together than divide and and and, and cannibalize the different audiences out there. So that was very interesting. Before we finish up, Frank, anything anything you want to add on your end? No, no. Thanks a lot, guys, for giving uh, me the opportunity to hopefully better explain what is the EBU and how we how we operate and uh, also hopefully a better showing to your audiences and your community that uh, public service media are involving and are innovative and are really aiming at uh, at building value with all of the partners. Yeah. Terrific. That, that was great, Frank, actually. And I think we should have you on a podcast uh, another time, but to discuss maybe a specific innovation that you, you would have put forward or some services that you can bring to federations and to the, the whole ecosystem, because I also learned a lot during the last 15 minutes. So that would be amazing, actually, to have also like some kind of real use cases that you're putting forward everywhere in, in Europe. No, no, for sure, always available to do so. And uh, as I said, we are now uh, close to validation of a couple of, let's say, go-to-market projects that uh, hopefully will be uh, agreed within our governance structure and as per our budget approval process, which we have the ambition of yeah, being potential um, not necessarily game changer within the business, but at least supporting and positioning this, uh, let's say this vision on a more concrete way and with immediate impact for, uh, for some countries and some of our members and partners. That's awesome. That sounds great. Frank, thank you very much once again for, for, for being here. I hope our audience will enjoy it as much as we enjoyed producing it and that they understand a bit better uh, EBU slash Eurovision sport now. Um, For, for our audience, thanks again for following us. As usual, would be very grateful if you went out there, uh, if you enjoy our podcast, to grade it well in the different platforms you're following them on. Uh, and look forward to a new, a new episode in the coming weeks. Bye-bye, guys. Le Corner.